It's nice to be back here in Cambridge. Takes one a little while to adjust being uh, flying across the country. But I was uh, grateful for a time to leave the smoke and uh, just the... We were fortunate to be uh, a bit of a distance away from the actual fires, but of course the smoke has uh, penetrated and permeated the toxic smoke for, for miles and miles and miles and miles. And just uh, the trauma of uh, all those connected to and involved with those 11,000 homes that were burned down, 70-something people known dead, a thousand are still missing, uh, countless number of animals uh, burned, and the the dryness of the air. The uh, uh, but uh, right after we left, uh, we've heard the rains have come. It's lovely here to uh, to smell and feel the moisture in the air and the crisp crispness of the air, and. Uh, we all are uh, uh, aware of the many fronts on which we face uh, individually and collectively these uh, storms, these uh, disasters, uh, ecologically, uh, fractures in our communities, in our political landscape, in our families and hearts. And so we wanted to, to reflect on this theme of uh, reclamation of the sacred. What is sacred? Depends on how one defines the, the word. It, it comes from a root. Uh, it means uh, from consecrate, to make sacred, to bless. There's a key in that, 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 that the ultimately the essence of sacred comes out of the heart. When we objectify the sacred as essentially out there, there's problems. Yes, there, there are sacred places where, where the, vi- the vibration, the the accumulated mystery and uh, awesomeness of this of this experience of being alive touches us deeply. That's how I first sensed the sacred in my own life. Uh, in a church. The vibration, the resounding silence, the roaring silence, and the sense of, as I listen, something approaching. But I had to go to the church when no one was there. Because I grew up in a place where, where in the Bible Belt of the South, where we were regularly reminded that we were in the wrong church. And that we were going down to the fiery place because my dad was 
New York Jewish, and my mother was a Southern Baptist, and they didn't quite know what to do with the, the children until Mom found in the paper one day this tiny little ad in the Chattanooga Times. They said, are you a Unitarian and don't know it? <laughs> and Mom said, Mo, you, you think this might be for us? He says, I don't know. Let's go see. And we grew up uh, where we at a unit, uh, going to a Unitarian church. They didn't even have a church. They had a few people meeting in a place. In the end, my dad, there was only like 10, my dad became a lay minister and helped them find their first proper Unitarian minister. I think he came up to Massachusetts to find the first one and bring him down to Chattanooga. But in there, there was this, this Unitarian, this notion that the truth can come from many different directions, but that there is a, a, a mysterious place where it all comes together, a, a sacred core. But in the Bible Belt, our, our church was a threat, and so we got bomb threats and set on fire and As I was going to my clarinet lesson in, a, in one of the local Bible schools, I loved playing the clarinet at the time, and I would be met, met at the door by people telling us, hey, you're in a car going over a cliff heading down to hell. You need to... And I, I would get so frustrated, and my father stayed so calm. I said, and he says, son, they just don't understand. But I, I was rejecting religion, really. But it was all these years later when I had spent so many years striving for, that there's this notion that sacred also means something really venerated, worthy of veneration, in my life, I unconsciously made winning something sacred, being the winner, achieving, working hard. These aren't bad things. But when one's always trying to be the best, how long do you stay the best? Then there's the next exam, the next tournament. Then... Th keeps evaporating, melting, because as we know, this life is, is ephemeral. But in a period of weariness, when I started realizing, hey, I've overlooked something, I've, I sensed that this, there's something here within us. And that's when I, I noticed that when I went into old churches in the UK, I was on a road scholarship to Oxford, but I was weary, tired. That I, that I noticed when I sat and listened. Intuitively, I knew there was something important here within us that I had not given attention to. The Buddha talks about... Uh,
there's that which is really precious, truly precious. He talked about the refuges, that which is truly trustworthy, true sources of inspiration, what he called Buddha Dhamma Sangha. You know, Buddha, external, first the historical awakened ones, free from greed, hatred, and delusion, but who wake up to the timeless Buddha, that timeless, ever-aware, listening core that is at the heart of all beings and all things, and that that uh, historical Buddha pointed us to this, this refuge that's in our heart, this truly sacred, always here, trustworthy quality of wakefulness, mindfulness, inner listening. He talked about the Dharma. These from that awakened place, when he woke up to the true nature, he, he, from that place he, he gave teachings that can, when we listen to them and align with them, like teachings on kindness and teachings on uh, mindfulness, uh, uh, teachings on investigation, teachings on suffering and its cause, and the ending of suffering, and the path to the ending of suffering that these teachings can guide us to this true sacred core, this true nature that's always bright, always peaceful. So there's these external dharma teachings, but he said the timeless inner dharma is, is that life, the, the true nature of life, even if there's no teaching right in front of us, is teaching us just like the dusk which is set in. It's teaching us the nature of uh, dawn, midday, and dusk, the changing of the seasons. There's the freshness, and we saw some snow this evening, which was such a change from the fiery west coast to this blessing of these, these beautiful flakes just coming down and touching the skin. Our feelings and moods and circumstances are teaching us. And Sangha, the, the refuge of truly kindred spirits, true people of integrity, can remind us, encourage us, empower us, set a good example on our path back home to this sacred core. And even if there aren't any good friends around, we seem to find ourselves alone. The Buddha said the essence of Sangha, which is always here and now, is that we can befriend with this heart, this awareness, can always befriend that which is skillful. No matter where we are, what the circumstance, we can befriend that which is kind, that which is wise, that which is reflective.
in the true Buddhist sense, we're on sacred ground now, here, wherever we are. The problem with objectifying the sacred into some distant heavenly realm that we're going to, or even if we make what's truly sacred, the, the scripture, the, the true views, the true words. We, can, we know in this world now the problem with, with tenaciously, compulsively, fixedly grasping it. I'm right, they're wrong. It's, we can turn something that might have truth in it to, to a, a, a bludgeon to a weapon that can justify the the evil ones over there that we have to get rid of. There's a problem with with, uh, what's happened in our age is this stripping of the sacred away from Mother Nature, from, from Mother Earth, from the body, and projected it out into some place. Or it can even become what is sacred is is power and and my possessions, what I want. But the Buddha, what we chanted this evening, talked about that the true sacred nature is always here and now. What he called this original brightness, which is the heart itself which we lose touch with when we get hijacked and scorched, driven by these fires of greed, hatred, and delusion, driving us here and there, seeking what is certain and secure and safe, and becoming refugees from this sacred core. I came across a definition of uh, greed, hatred, and delusion today. I just, I just, I, I thought the words were interesting, were good. Uh, it's from someone uh, called Andrew Olinsky, who's a Buddhist writer and scholar, teacher, practitioner. But he said, greed the powerful impulse to snatch whatever it can. will take even life itself from the defenseless. Greed, the powerful impulse to snatch whatever it can, will take even life itself from the defenseless. Hatred drives us to do unspeakable things to those we view as other. Hatred drives us to do unspeakable things to those we view as other. And delusion, so willingly embraced, smothers any insight that might arise about the danger we're in or the harm we may do. Delusion that so willingly embraced, so willingly embrace, smothers any insight that might arise about the danger we're in or the harm we may do.
the Buddha taught that this sacred core is always here and now. It's always inviting us. But that we get hijacked from this root core that is the essence of all conditions. The Buddha talks about this undying, unviolable, indestructible principle is where all things merge. He called, his phrase was, amato gada sabedhamma. Sabedam means every single circumstance and situation, all of us, amato gada sabedhamma. Sabedhamma means all situations, all dharmas, all circumstances, all beings. Gada means merge. Amato gada, merge in the deathless. We're all coming together in this root quality. So where's that? The Buddha said, the primary misconception about the mind and body is the false view that the mind dwells in the physical body. You do not know, he went on to say, that the physical body as well as the mountains, the rivers, empty space, and the great earth are all within the wonderful, bright, true mind. You do not know, he said, that the physical body, this body right here, as well as the mountains, the rivers, empty space, and the great earth are all within the wonderful, bright, true mind. The wonderful, bright, true mind, our experience of our body, this evening meditation, the thoughts that were happening are touching our consciousness and melting into awareness. And what the Buddha called this essence of awareness that we lose touch with when we get so hijacked by what's moving through awareness, the thoughts and feelings and wants and aversions, and we lose touch. But when we start to take refuge in Buddha Dhamma, being aware of Dhamma, of the way things are, we start to notice what, what is moving through the heart, these sounds that are coming and going. We might like the sounds, be interested, interested in the sounds, so cynical of, well, I'm not sure he knows what he's talking about, sounds. But when we're interested in the dharma, the nature of things, we'll notice, ah, that these phrases and sounds and experiences of pleasure and pain come and dissolve and melt right back into what remains, what's here all along. But this, this meditative ground of seeing the nature of things and then through letting go, being liberated from grasping and touching into and resting in and learning to trust and be the boundless brightness of our nature. Even though it's always here and now, the Buddha realized it arises gradually. His path of awakening 
is, is, helps reveal and little by little allow us to abandon that which is obscures our recognition of this ever-present heart. And so the path is built on, on ethical conduct, what's called restraint, that recognizes and challenges following these fires of greed, hatred, and delusion that, that, that I started with. And, that, and, and the, the Buddha talked about this ethical conduct, which, which rather than the spiritual practice just being something that, that is about me and my awakening, ethical conduct is aware that our path of awakening is relational is involved with our impact on others. And this foundation of the whole path is what the Buddha called the uh, taking the training of the five precepts. And then, you know, training ourselves not to harm, not to take life, training ourselves through choosing, not to take what doesn't belong, training ourselves not to exploit out of lust or greed, our sexuality or someone else's just for our own benefit, not realizing impact on others or impact on ourselves. Training ourselves to refrain from false speech. Training ourselves to refrain from uh, seeking nibbana just through intoxication that, that, that can lead to heedlessness or uh, not being aware of what we're doing. The Buddha called these, these uh, five precepts five gifts, the five great gifts. That is the foundation of that. Notice how relational it is. When we're just committing ourselves not to harm, sometimes we can get so overwhelmed by the violence and by the all that's going on, what can I do? The Buddha said that when you, each of us, resolves not to harm, that in that moment we're offering immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. Just one of us making that effort not to follow the impulse to to just knock away, to crush, to get rid of. That when we we might have impulses of anger and rage. It's natural. But to not act on those, we offer immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. Other beings can breathe more easily around us. And in time, the Buddha says, we will experience immeasurable freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. All the precepts, non-harming, respecting property, respecting each other's uh, sexuality, not to exploit one another. Realizing speech is so powerful, trying to speak wisely, truly, kindly, or in ways that really illumine and bring harmony. And to train ourselves to honor consciousness, not to, to, to misuse intoxicants that we offer immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. 
And that in time, that lays the groundwork of us being interwoven into the fabric of life. That gives rise then to the training of meditation because we can respect ourselves more as we little by little purify our ethical behavior. And then the samadhi starts to come together. And the samadhi, the gatheredness, the composure, then has the ability to see the nature of a thought, a worry, a doubt, and realize these conditions are just coming and going in this ever-present, wonderful, true, bright mind, which the Buddha, Buddha was talking about, which is always here, inviting us. But this, in the time we live in, this ethical foundation has been so overlooked and forgotten. The preciousness of non-harming, the five great gifts. And the Buddha also taught two other, what he called sukha mula, bright roots. Dwe sukha mula lokapala, loka, the world, Pala, guardians of the world. And this uh, same person that I uh, read the quote from, uh, Andrew Olinsky, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, forgive me if I'm not, but he called these two, uh, which I loved, I just came across this today, these locapalas, he called them the superheroes. And these are two qualities which the Buddha called guardians of the world, hiri ottapa, and they support these five precepts. And the Buddha talked like when these guardians are here, then there can be harmony. We're protected inside and we're protected outside, but when the guardians aren't present, there can just be promiscuity and violence and, and uh, chaos. Hiri means conscience, a guardian of the world. Conscience, which it's skillful to have a sense of shame when we've done something to harm ourselves or harm someone else. But not, shame is so, has such a shaming connotation. Maybe remorse is a better word. It is skillful to be able to, before something's done, or even after if it's done, if it's unskillful, to feel, hmm, that, that wasn't right. That harms someone. Or that's, that doesn't feel noble. Hiri, conscience. That's, it's useful to feel that. Yes, shame can be distorted, so we want to let go of the... Dis- one can be ashamed that your hair is wrong. You can be... People can be made to feel ashamed because of their skin color or their race or their sexuality. That's not what is being talked about. This sense of hiri is when we've done something against these five ancient, what the Buddha called pristine ethical principles. When we've done something to harm another being, to take what doesn't really belong wasn't what wasn't meant for us to be blinded by desire and 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 impose ourselves on another being exploitative behavior 
or to use speech that's false or just divisive or just for the sake of hurting someone. Or it's understandable, but when we use intoxication just to kind of space out and then realize, well, what did I say? What did I do? We don't even know. There's sometimes remorse, that quality the Buddha said is a guardian of the world, Hirari. And Otapa, its partner, the second superhero, Otapa means, sometimes translated, brace yourself, uh, moral dread. But it's, it's a skillful fear. It is skillful to have a, a, a pause and say, where will this go? If you're like me, sometimes we're, we're caught in a habit, and if we pause, we, we know where this is going. It's not going to a good place, not a good conse- consequence. The capacity to consider, what would my friends say? What would those I respect? Uh, will I be blamed? Or, or to, will this hurt anyone? There's a skillful fear that can help us pause and give space. And that's hugely important because greed, hatred, and delusion, when we're compulsive, then they're me. When we can pause, they can turn, rather than being turned by the condition, our Chinese master says, letting the condition turn. We allow the hungry ghost, rather than the Holy Ghost, when you're being guided by wisdom and compassion, the hungry ghost, when these tendencies, do this, do this, say this, and, and it becomes Dhamma then. Oh, it, there's fire. There's aversion. There's hostility. There's discouragement. And we learn to see its nature. Pausing and being able to, guardians of the world, And the Buddha t- talks about the guardians in the Itti Wuttakas, part of the scriptures, number 42, uh, section on twos. Uh, here he can be translated as conscience. Otapa, skillful fear of the results of wrongdoing. One, uh, I think, uh, Venerable Tanisaro translates it as concern. That's okay. Concern for where will this go? Or a skillful fear that can help us pause. But, so I could just say conscience and concern, or I can read the Pali words, but remember the first guardian is Hiri, H-I-R-I. The second is Otapa, or skillful fear of the results. Here's the Buddha's quote. It's a poem. Those in whom Hiri and Otapa are not always found have strayed from the bright root. Bright, luminous. Root is this root condition where all things merge. This heart of ours, it's always here inviting us. 
but we overlook it when we get hijacked to imagine the good stuff's over there. It's good. I'm getting to the success. I'm getting away from the failure. I'm getting to the power. Those in whom hiri and otapa, those in whom conscience and concern are not always found, have strayed from the bright root and are headed to birth and death. Bright root is sukkamula. Mula is root. But those in whom hiri and otapa, those in whom conscience and concern are rightly established always, who are mature in the holy life, they are peaceful. Having put an end to becoming. Becoming is this idea that we're, we're getting there. It always keeps us heading too far ahead or trying to get rid of something and missing this sacred treasure that's always here and now. In meditation, we point a lot to developing composure, to see the changing, unsatisfactory nature of things that aren't really ours so that we can let each sound and emotion and sensation be revealed in its ephemeral nature and touch into this ever-present that's always here, listening at ease to the sounds of the world. But this evening, I don't want to overlook this critical foundation that is so lacking in our wider world today and that as practitioners I, I think it's important to we can be really overwhelmed by what's happening around us and forget that even if we are quietly just committing ourselves in, to non-harming non-exploitation that that in and of itself is a great gift. And that when we keep remembering conscience, welcome that quality that helps us sense with remorse, ah, that was, that was wrong. It doesn't turn into an irreparable stain on our soul. Conscious remorse just reminds us that wasn't good. And then we avow to learn and begin again and share the goodness of our life with whoever we've harmed and try to make amends. And to remember that our truest nature is, is, uh, is undying, unharmed. This is Master Xunhua, a Chinese master, a wonderful Chinese master who taught us uh, the teachings around Kuan Yin and the great uh, Bodhisattva path. He said, Buddhas are always thinking about us. They are mindful of us living beings. But we living beings never remember the Buddhas. Why are the Buddhas mindful of living beings? 
it is because they see that all living beings are of the same substance. The Buddhas regard all living beings as their past fathers and mothers and as future Buddhas. So the Buddha said, quote, All living beings on the great earth have the Buddha nature. All can become Buddhas. Close quote. And Master Wa goes on to say, There's not a single living being who cannot become a Buddha. It is this very point that makes the teachings of Buddhism so lofty and all-encompassing. That is why the Buddhas advocate not killing, not killing, not stealing, not committing sexual misconduct, not lying, not taking, taking intoxicants. Maintaining these five precepts is a way of showing one's regard for all living creatures. And because the Buddha sees that all living Beings are one in substance with himself. He wants to teach and transform them, to take all living beings across to the accomplishment of full awakening. We living beings come into this world and renounce the roots while we grasp at the branches. We forget the fundamental matters and turn our backs on enlightenment. Grasp, renounce the roots, while we grasp at the branches. These bright roots, these refuges, this undying original brightness, what the Buddha called this root, primal essence of consciousness is always here. And this uh, fundamental practices that uh, help us remember the primacy, the fundamental power of the heart, the guardians of the world, conscience, and concern. May we remember these qualities and remember that that which is truly sacred and precious is always here and now, wherever we are, wherever we're standing or sitting, whoever we're with. I'd like to invite Tanisha now to... There was something you were going to add. I think it's, um, thank you so much. I think it's uh, helpful to be reminded of the ground um, of the practice and the core and the heart and the depth of it, um, which I feel you touched into. Um, this is a theme, the reclamation of the sacred that we've been working with for, for quite a while and theming some of our retreats around this contemplation 
I think pr- primarily because it's so obvious we've lost the sense of the sacred um, within our, the everyday, within our bodies, within our relationships, within our connection to everything that supports our life, our ways of life, and to the earth and the mother nature. That there's this profound disconnect and the, the sacred is often projected out in some special experience that seems to be removed from our ability to connect with. And it's through this loss of really our understanding or feeling our deep um, interrelationship with everything else within this web of life that in part, in good part, has generated the consequences that we're now living within, which is basically in short a major planetary crisis of of extraordinary proportions that uh, that is completely <laughs> overwhelming in terms of considering not so much the solutions because so many of the solutions are actually there, but uh, this mind caught in the fundamental poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion. That when that's uh, the cumulative effect of um, us as humans being so beholden to those energies and so caught up in them that they've been so profoundly projected onto, you know, onto the planet and the world around that um, you know, we've become sort of very saturated by the results of that momentum of greed, hatred, and delusion unchecked. Uh, and so this, um, you know, that, that uh, in part, you know, when you look at the very um, heart of, a, of mind, of conscious awareness, excuse me, so I was using these terms and pointing to recognizing the ground of the heart that is unsplit, that is always present, that's actually within which this unlimited mind, all things are appearing. Always is said, all things are, are resident in this one awareness. There's nothing outside of awareness. Or as Titnat Han would say, our our curriculum here. I don't know if he quite put it like that. If it is to understand that uh, um, that uh, the, um, that uh, we're not separated from anything. Sorry, I kind of that slightly mushed up that quote, but something like um, yeah, that. <laughs> that our fundamental nature is not independent and completely divorced from everything else, you know, that we depend on the breath, that we uh, breathe for life and the trees that um, trans- transmute uh, the poisons of carbon dioxide, we depend on the soils and the nourishment of the food grown from those soils, the rains, the weather patterns and, you know, everything about our existence is interconnected with everything else, not only in terms of our bodily existence, but also as a conscious being. And so when we experience ourselves as somehow separated out from the web of life of interconnection, um, and then when that mind that feels that separation is is caught in these deep um, energies, sort of the or energies of of grasping, wanting, looking, trying to seek or find um, and consume what's outside of us. And, you know, we do need what's outside of us to sustain life, but we're so caught in a culture of consumption that's come from this, often this great sense of inner lack. 
and this great sense of being divorced from this deep place of belonging and nurturing and okayness and 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 arriving in, in our being in our lives in our conscious awareness as a home as 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 a, a place and experience of fullness connection and connect contentment that we're so often divorced from that that we've the this this energy of um tanha or thirsting greed is always operating always scanning looking for something else to absorb into um, and that mind, when it's unchecked you know, and is uh, projected onto the world around, what do we need, what we consume, we, we can see the, the results of that now where we basically have consumed the whole planet almost. There's a little bit left <laughs> before it, um, the whole uh, ecosystem completely crashes and is able to sustain us. So this, this is a very, this, you know, the Buddha talked about this right at uh, at the heart of his teaching, all those thousands of years ago, is this mind burning with the greed of, uh, uh, with the bur- with the fire of, of greed, the fire of aversion and hatred. Um, and we can see so much of that now. These perpetual wars and killings that um, that don't lack, that have no hiri otapa, that have no sense of I have no right to take the life of another being whether that be a human or any other being, what gives us the right to do that? And how when that um, can only come about really when we feel so divorced from the other, that the other doesn't belong to us, we don't belong to each other anymore in this web of life, that we become so abstracted um, in these mental realms and ideologies that we don't really feel our kinship with each other um, and then we become so deluded by the rhetoric of division and war and hate that it becomes sort of, you know, clearly it's something that human beings have been doing for a long time, of taking the life of others, that it becomes um, a matter of fact, almost justified that this is what we have to do to survive, which is a very primitive way for us to be together on this planet, uh, the hunter and the hunted. Uh, so many stories around that theme generated from this separative consciousness. Um, and then the delusion that operates and, and weaves its way through these primary poisons of the mind where we don't see clearly uh, how we're generating so much suffering from this mind um, and projecting that out where we're um, not able to understand and see our de- depth of interconnection with each other and with all things, or as uh, said in Zen, the deep intimacy of all things is our reality, actually, or is reality. Or when we can't really, um, you know, contemplate these energies that, that generate this disconnect, then, then we have this, this profound sense that, of loss, the loss of being, the loss of sacredness, the loss of worth, the loss of fullness, the loss of our interconnection, the loss of love, the loss of um, you know, the joy of just being in this world, that one breath, one meal that we can be grateful for, that we can uh, actually um, feel f- fulfilled with, that we don't have to consume the whole world to feel full. 
So this conscience, you know, this is a very, when you talk about the hiri otapa of the mind, the guardians, we talk about the guardians of the, of the mind, when this isn't operating, when we don't have that hiri otapa, that sense of remorse, when we feel, oh, that wasn't skillful. As Kitty Saro said, that when it turns into a bad self, me being bad, then that's actually a wholesome state. But when we just say this was a action that, or speech or something or intention that was a little suspect. <laughs> so you feel that and you feel a sense of something and that's good to feel that because it informs us we won't do that again or we try not to until we get burnt enough and then we don't. Or the uh, otapa, the sense of, if, you know, like sometimes you feel like I really want to rage at this person, I really want to but you think about the consequences of that, you know, then that otapa, and especially if it's a very extreme action, it's like a, the fear and dread should be operating, that this has consequences. So the guardian of the mind, when we don't have those operating, we very discombulated, discombulated? Yeah, that. Internally, yeah. <laughs> Internally, we, you know, it's a very not a very found strong base. Then for the rest of the path to be built on, that's why so much importance. But it's also the guardians of the world that when these aren't operating in our political dialogue, in our social spheres, in our dealings around the economics of our systems, when these primary regulators of ethical ways of living so we can actually be in this world together, so many of us, and within these deep relationships with Mother Earth, informed by this feedback loop when that's not operating, then the guardians of the world are no, are no longer in place and we have breakdown, social breakdown, chaos, wars, all of the symptoms, many of the symptoms that we're seeing now, just all really emerging from this human mind and so, of course, we, we, um, we are now really being called to a great moment of, of reckoning where we have to look at how, where we've come to be, all of the many different causes that have brought us to this point in which we're implicated personally and collectively. And again, not to sort of suddenly go into a massive place of guilt or shame or overwhelm, but to really use this practice, this moment of mindfulness. This is how things have come to be. I don't, I don't necessarily like them. I, I really don't like a lot of how things have come to be on our planetary level. It's, it's shocking, terrifying, overwhelming, and you know, profoundly... Um, I, I, I can't, I've sort of run out of adjectives to describe the state of affairs <laughs> that we're in, really. <laughs> there are so many of them that we can, can use. It's, it's a really um, a, a great point of pressure in terms of the times we're in, this great sense of um, having to meet the consequences. But the point of practice is that whatever's going down, um, if it's a great thing like a planetary crisis, like the collapse of an ecosystem, or whether it's a niggling relationship, or whether it's looking at the roots of these, of, um, in the mind of these forces of greed, hatred, and delusion, the, the practice remains the same in many ways. I mean, I say in many ways because there's different approaches to practice. 
But essentially, as Ajahn Chah would, would teach, is bringing everything back to this mind. Um, and that certainly doesn't mean to say we don't respond in relationship to the, to the world now, particularly now, that, that we should do politically, environmentally, and so on. But where we come from, where we respond to, and where we actually understand that really whatever systems we're in, that um, if those systems are infused with these conscious awareness, with a recollection of ethical um, guidelines, um, with deep inner reflection on the causes and intentionality of what is m uh, manifesting around us, um, informed by this deep sense of refuge and ability to reconnect with a moment of awareness, then whatever is arising, we can bring a moment of mindfulness to this is how it is now. And this, however it is now, um, it's not to say that it's not pleasant or it's not going to overwhelm us, but it's workable from a place of practice. And this is what Ajahn Chah taught, not to have the perfect circumstance, not to wait till you have the exact right mind state, not to wait till everything's ironed out and fixed because it will never be like that. <laughs> um, we're never going to fix the world, we're never going to get it right, we're never going to get the perfect thing together or we might do for a moment and then it all collapses and someone interrupts and you know that beautiful sweet moment and something crashes in so the the place of practice is this mind what's happening here what's happening now and what are we with and how is it feeling what are the mind states and then to be able to contemplate this uh, um, what's arising to see um, this is how it is, to see it's changing, to notice. And in that process of noticing the arising and passing, the movements of whatever is present for us, that we're noticing there is that which is aware, that there's the background, the heart of knowing itself. And it's that knowing, as, as Kedisai was saying, this deep refuge that we can return to and that returning again and again into really deeply allowing ourselves to be fully in life as profoundly as we can, uh, as real as we can, as authentically as we can, to accept what is coming to us as the curriculum of our learning to dissolve the walls of the mind, to move beyond the separative consciousness, to understand the interconnection of all things, that this really begins the process of the reclamation um, of sacredness, not just as a sacred space, but as of everything. That there is nothing outside of the realms of the Dharma. Everything is within the Dharma, from, from the most difficult and challenging, the most suffering, uh, to the most enlightenment. It's all part of this one realm. And therefore, everything is teaching us, everything is unfolding, and therefore it has, even at the heart of the most despicable and distorted, there's still a very profound teaching moment happening. Um, and, that, and that teaching moment is often to do with the intensity needed to stimulate our awakening. So I would say at this particular moment on our planet, we haven't 
you know, these, these huge forces operating, that which would destroy, that which would confuse, that which would consume with, with unfettered greed. And at the same time, the horror of it and the extent of it and the transparency with, see, with which we're now seeing all that's unfolding is actually stimulating um, our waking up. It's like we don't have a lot of wriggle, wriggle room. We can't be distracted to the extent that we have been. We can't ignore the consequences of, of everything that uh, has come about due to our disconnect with, with nature that's gone on for centuries. Um, so there's this amazing opportunity of, of um, in, this is a very deep principle in the Dharma that actually the more the suffering, the greater the enlightenment. <laughs> we don't want to hear that. We don't want that. You know, we think actually if we take that all away, all the obstructions away, then it will be, that will be enlightenment. But Ajahn Chah said the obstructions is the path. You know, that uh, desire is the path. Aversion is the path. Uh, hatred and greed, um, but we've just got a lot of that on a rather big level. So we've got a really big path, and we've also got a really um, a big awakening awakening bonfire going on. <laughs> that uh, that we have this opportunity to to sharpen um, our swords of wisdom and to and our, our container of compassion. As Ajahn Charles said when he first came to our monastery in Britain in 1970. Eight or so, and we were building the first monastery, Theravada Monastery, from that school in the West. And we were a s- sort of a young bunch of people, um, kind of getting busy being enlightened. And uh, we didn't really realize what a long journey <laughs> and how humbling that would be, and how we sort of miss, sort of read the trajectory of it. Anyhow, Ajahn uh, Chah turned up and he said, Well, are you all getting along here? And uh, the abbot said, Ajahn Sumaya said, yeah, it's going fine, it's good, yeah, we're getting along really well. And he just said, well, there's not going to be much wisdom then, is there? <laughs> not much compassion. And so this is this principle, it's, it's nice when we get along, but we also have to be realistic that there's always the shadow and the light, there's always this interplay of these different forces, and that each has a purpose to really sharpen us, sharpen our wisdom, our clarity, our skills. Our so we get really, 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 really clear about what's going on and really, really see all the depths and layers of deception and really, really understand the mechanisms of how greed operates within and around us and really, really see the, the, the poison of uh, hatred and as we see all of that more and more clearly, then naturally we start to renounce our participation in perpetuating those energies. Naturally we start to cleave towards the path, this ancient path, as the Buddha said. It's always been there, even before the Buddha himself, that the awakened ones of old have always walked along. This path of training, of ethics, training in ethical uh, intentionality and conduct, this path of meditation and samadhi, of gathering and focusing, and this path of depth inquiry to keep, as the Buddha did, to keep questioning, to keep looking, to keep understanding what is reality here, what's unfolding. And then in response, as we awaken and the path starts to unfold within us, 
this capacity for um, the activity of wisdom and insight is compassion. It's, uh, that we don't only stop with ourselves. If we had, we wouldn't have. If the masters of old had just stopped with their own peace, we wouldn't be sitting here tonight. You know, the Buddha said, go forth out of compassion for the many f- uh, folk and teach what you can. Do what you can. And this is what we do, you know. It doesn't have to be perfect, doesn't have to be polished, doesn't have to be the most, you know, profound thing, the most earthquaking thing. It's just do as good as we can, as good as it gets, uh, to help each other and to uh, walk this path um, of peace, of awakening, of transformation. It's the most precious thing um, that we have.